from the newsroom of the Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah, yeah. Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from the Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, July 6th. Today, what the Delta variant means for you, plus the universal struggle for Black women in higher education. Right now in the U.S., it seems like things are going pretty well. People are getting vaccinated. People are being able to take off masks safely. People are getting reunited and hugging their friends and families for the first time. But at the same time, we are hearing all this news about this scary thing on the horizon, the Delta variant, that seems like it's threatening to take all that good stuff away. So all viruses mutate and take on different strains. The Delta variant is one of the different variants of the coronavirus, and it was first detected in India during the catastrophic surge of cases earlier this spring. Fennett Nirapil covers the pandemic for The Post, and he's been following the rise of the Delta variant. It is this mutated form of coronavirus that's estimated to be around 50% more transmissible than previous forms. He talked to producer Emma Talkoff. The reason that the Delta variant has alarmed public health officials is because it's highly transmissible. And it's even more transmissible than the B117 variant that was first detected in the United Kingdom. Do we know, like, how pervasive is the Delta variant in the U.S. right now? First, I should just start by saying that it's always hard to pinpoint exactly how prevalent any variant is in the United States because we have limited capacity for doing genetic sequencing of viruses. Mm. Some countries are able to sequence far more of their viruses than others. That being said, we do have some capacity and authorities often look to the share of uh, the variants that they have been sequencing. We discussed how the Delta variant is already responsible for half of all cases in many parts of this country. It's more easily transmissible, potentially more dangerous. We're also seeing signs that Delta is the predominant variant in Arkansas, Colorado, Missouri, and Utah, where we have been seeing spikes in cases that are related to this variant. So right now, Nevada has the highest uh, per capita new cases in the country, and their state public health lab saw Delta variants going from 16% of the samples they reviewed in the first half of June to 46% in the second half of June. How are officials responding in those parts of the country where it is really prevalent, where they're being hit the hardest? Well, right now we're in a stage where most localities are dropping restrictions left and right, but we are still seeing upticks in parts of the country and increases in hospitalizations because of the Delta variant. A lot of public health leaders and elected officials have chosen to respond by focusing on vaccination. One of the points that public health authorities have been making to unvaccinated people is that this Delta strain is much riskier than the strain that was going around a year ago. We just had another major holiday weekend with the 4th of July, where we saw air travel exceeding air travel back in 2019 and the AAA projecting that there's going to be just as much travel uh, this year compared to pre-pandemic levels. So you're having a lot of gatherings, you're having big celebrations with much of the country not wearing masks and not practicing social distancing. 
It may be that the vaccines are going to be an effective shield to really reduce the transmission of the virus in a setting like this. But public health authorities are especially worried about what's happening in the communities where few people aren't unvaccinated because this variant is more transmissible. When you have people who are in a room with someone who's carrying that Delta strain, they're more likely to get it than if they were celebrating maskless last 4th of July. Wow. So can you say more about that? Like, how does the transmissibility of this strain compare to the other strains? And I guess, how do the symptoms or the deadliness of it compare? So I'll also add that scientists are still really trying to understand exactly how much more dangerous the Delta variant is. So there's still some open questions about whether it causes more severe illness and whether fully vaccinated people can transmit this virus as well. These questions can be hard to pinpoint, but what scientists can say is that when a virus is more transmissible and is more contagious, it can cause a lot more problems. And just logically, if more people are contracting a virus that's spreading more quickly in a community, you're also going to see more people end up in the hospital and more people die, even if the virus itself isn't particularly more deadly. Do we know how effective the vaccines that many of us already have are against this new variant? So Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson have all said that their vaccines are effective against the Delta variant. It is important, though, to recognize that we are going to see breakthrough infections, especially if Delta is spreading rapidly. But these kind of breakthrough infections, which means someone contracts the virus even though they are vaccinated, they're rare. And even rarer so is someone having a severe illness or ending up in the hospital when they're already vaccinated because the vaccines do provide protection against that virus turning into something more deadly. So given kind of all of this, how concerned should Americans be about the Delta variant? If you haven't been vaccinated, and if you live in a community with a high concentration of unvaccinated people, you are in danger because of this Delta variant. The CDC identified a thousand counties that have under 30% of the population fully vaccinated. And One of the points that public health officials have been making to me is that right now you're in a situation where you have half the population vaccinated uh, nationwide and you have the economy fully reopened. You have people going out and about, being maskless, being in businesses with no capacity restrictions while this variant is going around. The conditions are here for this variant to travel more quickly in unvaccinated populations than was the case about a year ago or when the country was more under lockdown. Um, Do you think there's a chance that we're going to go back to widespread mask wearing or mask mandates because of this variant? So Los Angeles came out and strongly recommended that all residents, vaccinated and unvaccinated alike, wear masks again indoors because of the danger of this Delta variant. Mm -hmm. Now, again, like I mentioned earlier, it does appear that vaccines do protect people against the Delta variant, but there have been some breakthrough infections. And in LA in particular, they identified 123 people who were infected with the virus, and 10 of them were fully vaccinated. The reason that Los Angeles is saying you should wear your masks again is because there is still some uncertainty about whether those fully vaccinated people can spread the virus as well. And it's really more coming from a place of an abundance of caution. Now, whether we're going to see this become widespread, that's more uncertain. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention say that they're not 
at this time interested in revisiting their guidance for masking, which essentially says that vaccinated people can go without masks in most circumstances. We also are seeing that a lot of uh, public health agencies and governors and state legislatures have a limited appetite for restrictions anymore. And there is a sense of pandemic fatigue and restriction fatigue that's been settling in with much of the population. And even if you do bring mask mandates back, there's a question of how many people are going to adhere to them. What about like the federal government? How are they responding to this variant? So last week, the White House announced that they're going to be establishing these surge response teams to respond to these regional flare-ups that we're seeing in Delta variant uh, coronavirus cases. Now, what the response teams will do is focus on sending supplies and expertise to help these communities deal with these new outbreaks. And right now, we're seeing that happen in places like Colorado, Utah, and a part of the Midwest with South Missouri and its borders with Northwest Arkansas and Northeast Oklahoma that are all seeing increased hospitalizations as a result of the Delta variant. So we've been kind of focusing this conversation on the United States. How about globally? How big of a threat is the Delta variant? And, you know, where are we seeing it kind of popping up? Right. So this Delta variant has been wreaking havoc around the globe. Like I mentioned, it was first uh, detected in India when we saw a big catastrophic surge of cases that was spreading through the country like wildfire and led to a situation where hospitals were being overrun and running out of oxygen and patients were being forced to fend for themselves. We're also seeing that countries that have largely avoided the brunt of the virus are now dealing with new spikes and problems because of the Delta variant, including Australia and parts of South East Asia. And we're also seeing that countries are starting to bring back the kind of restrictions that the U.S. is lifting. In Thailand, part of the country is under a new month-long lockdown. Israel decided to restore its indoor mask mandate. South Africa has banned indoor dining and alcohol sales. We're seeing trouble around the world because of the Delta variant. From your perspective, what do you think are the big outstanding unknowns about this variant? I think the big questions about this variant are how it can be transmitted by vaccinated people, whether it's going to be deadlier, whether it's going to cause more severe symptoms. We have seen some evidence that the symptoms are a bit different than the original strains, but we're still trying to get a good handle on how exactly the experience of someone who gets Delta strain differs from someone who would have contracted coronavirus a year ago. And then the other big question is, We know that even mutated strains of virus can mutate and evolve further. Already we're seeing cases of a variant that's been referred to as Delta Plus. We're still not entirely clear whether that's any worse than uh, Delta or any more transmissible or any more deadly. And that's one of the points that public health officials have been making. This virus is going to keep mutating when it's being spread in a community, when it's going through more bodies, when it's replicating over and over again and has an opportunity to mutate more and more. The best way to stop these strains is to get vaccinated and to prevent the transmission of this virus. Fennett Nirapil is a health and science reporter for The Post. This story was produced by Emma Talkoff. I'm Hannah Rosen, host of Radio Atlantic. Wait, really? 
Every week, we talk to Atlantic writers or other creative thinkers, and we take one idea and we road test it. Maybe what I'm asking is, is the problem them or us? Sometimes I change my mind about things. That's such a good point. I never thought of that. Maybe you will, too. Or at least you might see something differently. Ooh, that's fabulous. Radio Atlantic. New episodes every Thursday. Over the last few weeks, there has been this battle brewing at an esteemed journalism school in North Carolina. This controversy over a tenured academic position has somehow become this proxy for the battle over critical race theory and diversity in hiring. And on Tuesday morning, there was another twist in that story. Well, I've decided to decline the offer of tenure. I will not be teaching on the faculty of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. So what happened this morning was pretty extraordinary. Nicole Hannah-Jones went on CBS this morning and spoke with Gail King and told her that she would not be going to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill as a journalism professor. Nick Anderson covers higher education for The Post. Instead, she will be a journalism professor with tenure at Howard University here in the nation's capital. It's a very difficult decision, not a decision I wanted to make. Then she went through a series of reasons uh, that was really a pretty powerful indictment of the University of North Carolina. Look what it took to get tenure. So this was a position that since the 1980s came with tenure. And so to be denied it and to only have that vote occur on the last possible day after threat of legal action, after weeks of protest, after it became a national scandal, it's just not something that I want anymore. She said, look, this controversy was mishandled, that she believed that she had been opposed for tenure or delayed for tenure because of politics and political views about her work, also because, frankly, of discrimination against her as a black woman. I have been very, very thoughtful about my decision uh, to go to an historically black college. And what I decided is, I've spent my entire life proving that I belonged in elite white spaces uh, that were not built for black people. And she's going to go somewhere else where she feels like her work will be valued and she won't have to face the big hullabaloo. Our producer Jordan Marie Smith talked to Nick about this case with Nicole Hannah-Jones, but also about what this means for black academics beyond UNC Chapel Hill. So, Nick, for listeners who haven't been following this story as closely as, say, you or I, can you explain the background of what's been going on and why there's been so much controversy over UNC's decision to give or not give Nicole Hannah-Jones tenure? Sure. Well, let's start with the fact that Nicole Hannah-Jones is a Pulitzer Prize winner and a decorated professional in journalism who works for the New York Times. So she has a long record as a professional journalist and an acclaimed one. So she was recruited by the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill to come teach there as a journalism professor. Specifically, she was recruited to the Knight Chair in Race and Investigative Journalism. That was a pretty plum perch for her at UNC if she wanted it. Then UNC got into a big controversy, first internally and behind the scenes, but then it burst into public view about whether she, Nicole Hannah-Jones, should be granted tenure. And that controversy simmered and simmered and exploded. And then finally, it got settled 
last week with the board of trustees voting to give her tenure, but she, at the end of the day, was kind of turned off by the controversy. She said, hey, wh- why is this controversial? What? Why was my application for tenure delayed when others who had previously held this position that I'm about to come into had been given tenure no problem? She wanted to be treated the same as predecessors, and she wasn't. So why is being tenured so important? Tenure is the top of the academic ladder for professors. It gives them the freedom to say and think and do the kind of research that they want to do without fear of being fired or punished for it. Now, it's not an absolute. People who have tenure can get fired, but it really gives professors who have it a degree of protection and autonomy that they believe will help them continue the work of the university in seeking truth and knowledge wherever that search leads. And that protects them from political influence. It protects them from uh, meddling by outsiders. And it gives them a certain degree of assurance that from year to year, whatever they might say in the classroom or publish in, uh, in a journal article will not come back to bite them and cause them to lose their jobs. After Nicole Hannah-Jones's announcement that she's going to Howard, what has UNC Chapel Hill said about all of this? We asked UNC's top officials for comment this morning. We haven't heard anything back yet. Um, we expect that we will at some point soon. We also have received a comment from the dean of the journalism school at UNC. Now, she's not a top official at the university, but she is the head of the journalism school, and her name is Susan King. And she said she was disappointed that UNC would not be getting Nicole Hannah-Jones onto its faculty. And Dean King had frankly championed tenure for Nicole Hannah-Jones. She also said that, you know, UNC has some work ahead of it to to be the kind of university it aspires to be. So, you know, I think Dean King and the faculty at that school in UNC are going to be leading a discussion that's going to be wide ranging um, and is probably going to draw in other sectors of the university about how to avoid this drama in the future. Nick, I'm curious, how has... All of this news surrounding Nicole Hannah-Jones, how has it revealed broader issues, not only at UNC Chapel Hill, but at other higher ed institutions as well? Well, we can't escape really the moment that the country is in. There's deep introspection in this country about the treatment of black professionals in the workplace. And that extends to, of course, universities. Nicole Hannah-Jones is a black woman and black female faculty are not represented in proportion in academia to, you know, their numbers in society at large. And, and they have a lot of stories to tell about mistreatment and discrimination of various kinds. And so I think there's a lot of faculty members out there who look at this story and they feel resonance in this story either to their own situation personally or to situations that they've witnessed behind the scenes and and have regrets or doubts about. Um, I think this is going to spark soul-searching throughout academia, not just at UNC. It's really about equity. 
It's about fair treatment, and it, it's about you know how does the professoriate of America look, <laughs> and how does it act, and and how does it take care of its own, and how does it respect the work of people who have risen to the top of their professions and and to the top of their fields, and you know treat them as equals um, in in the search for knowledge and in the teaching of knowledge. I just feel really overwhelmed and really exhausted, to be completely honest. The problem of racism in higher education goes well beyond Nicole Hannah-Jones. A couple weeks ago, Jordan Marie reached out to a few Black female professors, and she wanted to hear from them about what their experiences have been like working in academia. I came on as chair, and it wasn't as if the job itself was going to be difficult for me. What was going to be difficult is sitting in a room knowing that I might be one of the only, if not one of maybe three, black women. A black woman in academia, and in my my very narrow experience, I've been supported. I've had good relationships. I've had people who have mentored me well. I've also been excluded. I've also been minimized. That is Dr. Marinda Catherine Harrell-Levy, a professor at Penn State, and Dr. Sharon Holland at UNC Chapel Hill. I'm Dr. Trevi A. McDonald. I am the Julian Shear Term Associate Professor in the broadcast sequence, and I am also the school's inaugural Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. To my knowledge, I'm only the third Black woman who's been in the journalism school on a tenure track. So what has it been like being Black at UNC Chapel Hill? It's really been overwhelming. I even saw a tweet from one of my students who said that throughout her entire education, I'm the only Black woman who ever taught her. And it was not until her last semester of undergrad. And I think it's very important that we are able to teach from different perspectives. And that requires a diverse faculty as well as inclusion in our curriculum. But it's, it's, it's challenging. Certainly wish there were other Black women on the faculty in the journalism school. And we do have another Black woman who is a fixed-term faculty member in public relations who the students love. But, and the word but is always a cancellation, there should not just be the two of us. Because we end up doing just a lot of advising, a lot of mentoring, and just really supporting students of color, both at the undergraduate and graduate level. You mentioned the mentorship that goes on, and you serve on a lot of committees. I'm curious if you could illustrate for me what is like a typical month of being a Black woman at a higher education institution and who also is one of the few that's tenured? Yeah, like number one, there are not enough hours in the day. From the teaching, even though I am the director of diversity, equity, and inclusion for the school, I'm still a faculty member. I teach the diversity course, and that's a course that changes. It can change from day to day based on what's happening in the world. So, um, of course, I have to stay on my toes for that. 
Then there's the committee work, the meetings, the effort as the director of diversity, equity, and inclusion to really effect change and to create a sense of belonging for um, our students, faculty, and most importantly, our staff in the school, because I feel that staff is so often overlooked when they are so essential and just really working hard to try to implement different programs, different um even new courses. That's a lot. <laughs> and I still have to eat and sleep and then try to have some balance in life and, and, and work on uh, scholarship as well. So, Dr. McDonald, what would you say to incoming Black faculty at UNC Chapel Hill? That's a million-dollar question. I always like to end my classes with my students with a million-dollar question because yeah, our student body president uh, issued an open letter Basically saying until we have a reckoning and some changes happen that black students, faculty and staff should not come. He's saying go where you will be respected and appreciated. We must be intentional about diversity, equity, belonging and inclusion all the way around. Not just because it's the popular thing to do right now. But we have, to, we have to really be intentional about it. Dr. Trevi McDonald is a journalism professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. In 2018, she became the first Black woman to earn tenure at the university's journalism school. You also heard the voices of Dr. Marinda Catherine Harrell-Levy, professor at Penn State, and Dr. Sharon Holland at UNC Chapel Hill. The segment was produced by Jordan Murray Smith. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show is mixed by Rena Flores. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com and join the conversation online using the hashtag postreports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.